the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the very first post-Easter program. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. What's ever on your heart or mind, maybe in yesterday's Easter service, wherever you went to church, you heard something that you didn't quite understand clearly. Uh, Whatever it is, we'll do the best that we can to answer your question. 340-9585 is our phone number for your calls. 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com. We've had a whole bunch of them come in uh, of late here. Uh, Or you can send your question via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected to our professional producer in the studio today. One more time, 340-9585. I hope you had a great Easter yesterday. Uh, um, Just one of those days that's so very, very special. We had a blast at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. Had a huge crowd and um, people got saved. Think about that. People got saved. Their eternal destinies were changed forever. Uh, and that's what it's all about. That's the power of an empty tomb. So I hope you had a great, great time. Um, because it's Monday, we've got some things going on here. It's uh, our Monday night men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. Um, meet together for worship, and then they go their separate directions for the Bible studies. Ladies, you can watch at calvaryessay.com. I forgot to ask who's teaching tonight, so I don't really know. Um, but uh, you, it's a day you can bring your whole family from high school to junior high school age kids, uh, to husbands and wives. Um, I know there's something else I'm forgetting, but since I can't remember... Oh, it's the first program in April. It's hard to believe time goes so fast. Well, let me get right to questions. Here is a question that came in from... Kirby from our mobile app. 
Uh, Kirby says, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, where did David actually go into the temple or his palace? Uh, Kirby, and maybe this question came from the Bible study I just did on this, but um, David went in to sit before the Lord. But remember, there was no temple at that time. Uh, the rest of the chapter goes into detail about how God is going to let David's son Solomon build the temple. So this would have been uh, in in his palace. He would have had a place where he would have gone and consulted God and worshipped God. So David was going into his palace uh, because the temple had not yet been built. So thank you for the question. I hope that answers it. Here is a question from our email inbox from AA. Uh, Pastor on grace and peace to you as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that blessing, AA. Here's his question. He said, reading 1 Kings 22, I find it somewhat comical that God consults other gods, and that's with a little g, or beings in the debate about whether or not Ahab should go and attack Gilead. The way it reads seems to indicate that God has a counsel and is asking them for options or for opinions. Verses 21 and 22 says one of them speaks, has an idea, and the Lord approves and tells him that his idea will succeed. The Bible is clear when it says other spiritual beings exist in earthly realms, Satan and his minions. We know angels are spiritual beings created by the Lord, but who are these host of heaven the Lord God is consulting with? Did he create them as well? Are they spirits whom embody the graven images man makes on earth? Am I supposed to be reading this literally? Uh, Let me deal with the last part of your question first. Um, The spiritual beings that that exist uh, are are angels. They're fallen angels, but they're also the heavenly host is, is, is also the angels that stayed faithful to their first estate, those who stayed loyal to God in the rebellion of of Lucifer. Um, That's always who the host of heaven. And this is a very, very spiritual um, uh, look rather into the the goings on behind the spiritual realms. So that's important to understand. That's what this chapter is all about. Now, I think you read it a little bit too literally in the sense that God wasn't asking any of them for uh, approval or for options at all. God wasn't consulting them. What God was doing, and same thing he always does, he uses even his enemies in the spiritual realm to accomplish his purpose. Let me go back in this passage of scripture for a moment uh, so we can well, go back to verse 19 so you get an idea. Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all of the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. Now, we know Jesus is on the right hand of God, always has been, even before Jesus was uh, incarnate. That's the power hand. So symbolically, this would be on the other side, so to speak. Verse 20 says, And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, and another suggested that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets, he said. And then the Lord responded by saying, You will succeed in enticing him. Go and do it. Now, angels and, and, and the devil, fallen angels and, and certainly um, God's angels, of course, have access to God's throne. Um, the right hand, again, is power, it's favor. Um, perhaps this was God simply giving the prophet Micaiah 
the opportunity to see into the spiritual realm, to see things that are going on that he couldn't see otherwise. Uh, God allowed this prophet, a true prophet of God, a front row seat to things going on in heaven. Um, by asking who will entice Ahab, it wasn't as though God didn't know. He was simply using this vision to communicate to Micaiah uh, how this was going to happen. Now, in the process, Ahab would be given false confidence to do what he'd already determined to do by means of God allowing a lying spirit to deceive him. That's what he wanted to do. God simply uh, encouraged the lying spirits to go. Uh, it's troubling to some people because they say God couldn't ever be the author of a lying spirit. Um, God is light. There's no darkness at all. But here we have to understand God's not the source of temptation. Remember this. God is the one telling Ahab the truth in this conversation. At this moment, he has the choice to believe God through the prophet Micaiah as he delivers the truth. Or he can believe the false prophets who he is paying to lie. Now remember, God always tells the truth, but when we don't want to hear it, he won't force us to listen. And that was the case with Ahab. Ahab determined to do what he wanted to do. It's like so many of us, AA. We determine what we want to do and then when we read the word or the Spirit speaks to our heart and says, no, we don't do it, we try to find other people who tell us to go and do what it is that we want to do in the first place. And that's all Ahab is doing. Ahab was a terrible, terrible king of Israel. Um, he didn't belong to God. He's not going to be in heaven. So God uses the lying spirits to do his call. Even Satan who is always lying, is called a servant of God to accomplish God's will, even when he's, or while he's in rebellion against God. So I think that's all that this has done. It's not uh, something that we can expect is going to happen. God isn't consulting them in this vision for the prophet. Remember, he's a human and sees things through a limited lens. Um, God is simply showing the prophet what's going on behind the scenes. Hope that matters. 340-9585 for your live calls. Let's go to Carrie calling from the north side. Uh, Carrie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes. Hi, Pastor Ross. Um, Hi, Carrie. I have a question. Um, I um, have a friend. Um, she is a Roman Catholic, and, um, you know, we kind of have these debates now and then, and she um, is adamant that the Eucharist is the... Uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ, and, yeah. and from what I can tell, she—I don't hear a lot about Jesus, but, um, and you know, as relational, I just hear that that's how you are close to Jesus is through mm -hmm. the Eucharist by consuming the body and blood of Jesus. And um, so, I wanted to kind of ask you about that, like how I could lovingly respond to her. And then I kind of wanted to ask, because she, she had always kind of told me that if I study church history, like many other Protestants have, you will go and you will, you know, you'll probably be converted because you'll see that Catholicism, the history of it, and and how um, it's, it's the true Christian or the true Christian religion. And so I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, could you... Tell me more about the church history and, you know, and kind of maybe what she's alluding to or what she's trying to point out. 
And because um, what I can see from church history, it's it's not like that. You know, I kind of <laughs> I see the corruption um, from yeah. way back, and I just kind of yeah. wanted to maybe she's seeing something I'm not. But anyways, that's kind of I just I didn't mean to go too on about that, but um, that's okay. That's kind of the questions that I had. That's okay. Great question, and I can I'll do my best. Uh, Carrie, and, and, and communicate this in a loving sense, but here's what we've, we've got to understand. And, and my biggest thorn in the flesh with, with Roman Catholics or Roman Catholicism uh, in general is simply that you've got to choose um, where your source of authority comes from. Um, our source of authority is the Word of God. A Catholic would say our source of authority is the tradition of the church. Well, when you talk about church history, all that we learn from church history is what an embarrassment that we've been throughout the generations. You know, it was less than 60 years after Jesus. In fact, let me, let me be more specific. It was 30 years after Jesus died and was risen when, when religion began to infiltrate the church. And um, uh, religion has always been man's attempt to do something to reach up to God, to make our way to God, to justify ourselves before God. And that's very much what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's, it's we're saved by faith, but we're also saved by doing good works. And the church has taught this, the, the Catholic Church has taught this from the very beginning of time. Now, the problem is the Catholic Church has continued to change you know, one pope will say something, it's speaking ex cathedra, so it's supposedly the very words of God, and then the next pope changes it. Now we've got a new pope who just last week made the statement that that uh, hell is not real. Uh, the Vatican's trying to back away from it, but in truth, he said what he said, and we know that's what he believes. So who's telling the truth? That's why we need an objective source of authority. And her authority is always going to be the tradition of the church. Now, there's a couple of things, and I'll get to the, the transubstantiation or the, the literal body of Christ in a moment. But um, the, the, the church is, is always going to appeal to its history, and they'll take it all the way back to Peter, who they claim is the first pope. Now, the problem with that is that it can't possibly be. Uh, Roman Catholicism, as we understand it, and by that I mean the church in Rome, when the, the empire of Rome was in charge, uh, wasn't even established uh, until 313 A.D. Peter obviously was long gone by then, and so it's impossible to trace the lineage of the popes to Peter. Now, they do it, and they do some twisting, but the truth of the matter is that Peter couldn't have been the first pope because the church didn't exist. The, the Catholic church... In Rome, it simply meant the universal church. And it was at that moment in 313 A.D. when the emperor of Rome declared Christianity the faith uh, of the world. He was the, the leader of the world. And that's where the Roman Catholic Church was born. It's not possible to take their history back before that very, very moment. So if you look at the history, and, and, and I would challenge you to do your own investigating, if you look at the history, then what we find is there has been a series of misunderstandings about our relationship with God. It's always been a religion rather than a relationship, and you noted that in your uh, observations of your friend, uh, and it's because we think that we can do good things. Now, I'll go one better with church history. We can go back to the Orthodox Church, which predates the Roman Catholic Church. 
And if you find somebody who's a, a fundamental Orthodox Christian, uh, while they believe in the same Jesus, the same Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like the Catholic Church does, they have a misunderstanding of many, many things. The idea of atonement, the idea of infant baptism. So the, the history of the Church has been a horrible embarrassment to the world. It's only that Jesus is holding it together. So challenge her to take a very, very close look at the history of the church, and she will no longer be confident that the Roman Catholic Church is the right way, but instead she'll be embarrassed. If you want to know the roots of the church, go back to Jesus' seven letters to the church, uh, into the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Um, that happened at the end of the first century, and um, we, we get an idea of the things that were going on, the troubles that were plaguing, but the whole idea is that the relationship, their love, their passion for Jesus, especially in the Church of Ephesus, had been lost. So I think that's what's really, really important. So uh, relationship, Carrie, as opposed to religion, and all you have to do is read what the Bible says, read what Jesus himself said. And what they will tell you is that, well, you know, the church says, and again, there we get back to the, the question of authority. Uh, regarding uh, the, the, the Eucharist, the, the bread, the cracker becoming the, the literal body of Jesus, Catholics aren't the only ones that believe that. Lutherans believe it. Episcopal Church believes it. Uh, the Anglican Church believes it. Uh, it's not a heretical point of view. It, it's it's silly in my view, and I, I say that with no disrespect to those who have been taught that that's the correct view. Uh, but if you understand, Carrie, that Jesus was in his body, when he took the bread, he broke it, said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. Well, his body hadn't been broken for us. He was clearly speaking in figurative language. He later says that we're to do this when we meet, we're to take communion, we're to do this in remembrance of him. It's sort of a memorial. It's not something that happens literally. And um, when, when religious people really and truly believe that, that their relationship comes through the breaking of the bread, the cup is his real blood, the bread is his real flesh, and they feel like, well, since that's okay, I'm okay. That's my relationship. But it's not based on passion. It's not based on love. So pray for your friend. Um, do not be swayed by her arguments. Instead, just tell her about Jesus. One other thing, Carrie, and I think this is the most effective thing, at least over the years for me, is to have her examine Jesus' conversation directly with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the most religious man in Israel, a renowned teacher, Israel's primary preeminent teacher. And Jesus told him he must be born again. Told it to him twice. And ask your friend to read it. It's not that long. Read it, read it five, six times. You do the same, and then maybe the two of you can sit down and instead of debating about something, the next time you get together, you can just do a little Bible study talking to each other about what Jesus is saying. Not through the lens of the church, but simply look at the words and determine, well, what's Jesus saying? And who's he saying it to? When you realize he's saying it to a religious man, in fact, the most religious man in Israel, it's a stunning indictment 
against religion. And Nicodemus was shocked when Jesus said, you must be born again. So, Carrie, thank you very, very much. I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Tim. He says, I saw Paul, apostle of Christ, in parentheses, he writes, it was amazing, by the way, and decided to do some research on Luke. He's described by this one website uh, I saw as one of the 70 apostles. There were 12, so that seems strange to me. When I researched the 70 apostle business, uh, they were talking about the 70 disciples that Jesus sends out in the Gospels. Were those 70 disciples sent, uh, were the 70 disciples apostles? I thought only 12 were apostles, uh, and was Luke, in fact, an apostle? Um, Tim, there is a, there's a, a broad definition of the word apostle, uh, as there is a, a narrow definition of the word apostle. Let me explain. Uh, I'm sure that, that, uh, um, that, that your, your research indicated he's one of the 70 who was sent out by Jesus uh, when he gave them power to cast out demons. They just went on a mission for him. Um, but the, 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 the very narrow version of the word, it's angelos, it's a, uh, a word that means messenger, really, that's all it means. And when it's used in its, in its narrow form, it always refers only to the 12, the 11 plus later Matthias. So it only refers to the, those that were anointed by God in the office of apostle and given the, the power to do miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, to validate their ministry as true spokesmen for Jesus Christ after Jesus was gone. So um, Luke was not an apostle, but he certainly was a messenger. And those who went out, uh, the 70 uh, who, who would have certainly been converted and been believers in Jesus Christ, they were messengers. Philip, we know, was not an apostle, but he was a messenger and an evangelist. He went out first to Samaria. So uh, um, there were only 12. There are 12 thrones in heaven for the apostles. Uh, you can read that in the book of Revelation. Um, so it's not a very broad view whatsoever. So it, it, it's strange. It seems strange because you're right. There were only 12 apostles. Um, you know, one of the things about the movie that I liked the most was um, just, just this whole perspective from Luke. You know, Paul writes to Timothy in the last letter he ever wrote uh, just before his death at the hands of Caesar. Uh, Paul wrote, uh, in his loneliness, only Luke is with me. And I, I think that was an absolutely brilliant perspective to take with the movie. And like you, I loved it. Um, and uh, I loved the interaction between Paul and Luke. Um, I loved the sense of humor, but I also loved the seriousness of the work. I loved the fact that, that, that uh, Luke, uh, Luke's character was very honest uh, with his questions and with his struggles. Um, I think about the strength it took for men like Luke uh, to survive and thrive in, in, a, in a cruel, ancient Roman world. So, Tim, I'm in agreement with you, but um, you're right. There were only 12 apostles, and there will never be any other apostles like the 12. 
Hope that makes some sense to you. 340-9585. Here is a question from our email inbox from Mark. Uh, Mark says, where in the Bible does it say that there are no prophets? And would you please explain the gift of prophecy? I've heard it explained as it's not really prophesying like telling the future. It's saying a word from the Lord and someone is edified and says, wow, that really spoke to me. I needed to hear that. Uh, and that would be considered the gift of prophecy. The idea that you'd say something in a study, you unknowingly say uh, exactly what someone needed to hear. But in 1 Corinthians verse 14, uh, Paul gives those with a gift the title of prophet. And he says things like in verse 29, talking about how many prophets should speak and that what is said should be weighed carefully. This makes it sound as if more than just edifying someone who's with what's said in the Bible study. Otherwise, then wouldn't anyone who blesses someone with what's said in their study be considered a prophet? Uh, Mark a couple of things. It says in in, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that there are no prophets. The, the, The prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church. The Greek makes it clear it's a foundation already laid with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There's certainly not going to be another Jesus. And the church is being built on that foundation. You only need one foundation, so that's very, very important. Now, with regard to Paul giving them the title of prophet, we have to remember that this letter to the Corinthians, as were all of our New Testament epistles, were written before we had the the New Testament as we understand it. And we have to understand there were New Testament prophets then. They spoke the word of God. They gave direction. They gave instruction. Uh, We know that Agabus was a prophet. Philip's four daughters were prophetesses. Um, There are others that are named. Luke certainly is a prophet. Those who wrote the New Testament epistles, um, the gospel writers, we know that they were all prophets in the classical sense. But once the Bible was given to us. That need existed. That was the foundation already laid. So in the first century, with no Bible, the prophets were the living, the rhema word of God. That does not exist now because we have the full and revealed word of God. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate the question. 340-9585. You can hear the music. We're 30 minutes left in the Monday program. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday program, 340-9585. I'm laughing because my producer is funny, but I'm also busted because um, I, she, Paula just texted my producer here at the church and uh, and said she's the one teaching tonight so ladies paula is teaching the bible study tonight here pastor ken will be teaching the men uh pastor nelly the high school age youth and uh chris sanchez will be teaching our junior high uh, age kids um if you really want to be blessed um get some time go to calvarysa.com you don't have to listen to me but go to the um, um live stream archives You'll see the the service, um, Easter services. Um, I've been listening all day, 
uh, I'm so proud of our people. What a blessing it was and what great, great worship we had. You will be blessed. CalvarySA.com. 340-9585 for your live calls. Um, Mark, one thing I want to say, just I, I hope I was clear. The uh, Office of Prophet was in existence until we had our canon of Scripture. So there were real prophets. There were men who spoke for God. The correct understanding of the gift of prophecy is completely different. Having the gift of prophecy does not make one a prophet. Then there were prophets, so that's Paul's reference. But today, in sort of an afterglow setting, when the gifts of the Spirit are are, are being used, um, somebody will, will, again, stand up and say something. God will put a verse on their heart, a word on their heart, uh, and it'll be a word that encourages and edifies and strengthens others in the body. And you're right, somebody will say, oh, that's what I came here to here, I, I needed to get that question I had answered, and that happened. That happens often in our Africa. Somebody will get up and say, that word just a few minutes ago was for me. And that's the edification or the strengthening of the body. So, the gift of prophecy is not the foretelling of the future. It's the foretelling of God's word. And usually the person operating the gift has no idea who the word is for, but God just puts something on their heart. Now, there's one other thing that, that gets confused. There's also uh, a gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom, a word of, of knowledge or wisdom. Um, those are to be used as well uh, in an afterglow setting or in a, a edifying uh, 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 engagement. So, um, again, whenever the gift of prophecy is used, people encourage. It's not, thus saith the Lord, there's a sinner in here. It's not that at all. We have the word that convicts our hearts. But the gift of prophecy or the gift of the word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, they're very, very, very useful. And the only time that it would be anything other than completely edifying is if God's been dealing with you on an issue and um, uh, in fact um, that that God's dealing has been ignored, then God would send somebody else sort of knock on the door of your heart one more time. So, Mark, thank you for the question. Let's go to line one. We've got Derek on the far west side of San Antonio. Derek, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Derek, turn off your radio. Hi, Derek. I can hear you. I'm doing really well, thank you. Good, thank you for taking my call. Uh-huh. I, I just wanted to tell you, I love your Good Friday message. It, it, I listen to you all the time driving home from work, and I just absolutely, I had to sit in my car and finish it out before it was done. <laughs> thank you. And, but, but, but I had a question. Uh, you, you, you raised a point that made me go home and research, and, and an old Bible guy like myself, I, I, like, to, I like to pick apart things and when you made a comment that Saul of Tarsus was at the crucifixion, mm-hmm. and other than other than his encounter on the road to Damascus, can you can you help me find where I would where, where I would look where I would look for that or where I could find that? And then I'll hang up and listen uh, on the radio. Okay. But I appreciate you and, and God bless you. 
Okay, Derek, thank you very, very much. Derek, that does not, um, um, not something that we know specifically because Scripture um, tells us that Saul of Tarsus was there. Here's what we know about Saul. We know that Saul was uh, a Pharisee. Uh, he was a rising star uh, among, uh, among the religious leaders, whether it was Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Um, he had great wisdom, great insight. He was a man, a young man that everybody knew was going places. And he, he had enough ambition that he would have been, um, um, he would have made himself in the mix of all things. And that means he would have been in those secret meetings when they were discussing the the capture and the ultimate murder of Jesus. Um, I also talk about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea being in those same meetings, even though they were secret believers. Um, uh, he, he would have been someone who was in an influential enough position that he, we know in the book of Acts, as he gave approval to Stephen's death. In other words, it wouldn't have happened had he not given the thumbs up to it. Uh, so he would have been very active, and I am quite certain aggressive in those meetings um, when when they were discussing what they're going to do about this Jesus. The whole world is going after him. Um, so so we can make some, some assumptions based on that. Um, we also know that when Jesus apprehended him on the road to Damascus, that uh, Jesus said to him, Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads. In other words, you're you're fighting me, you're resisting. How's that going for you? Uh, and 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 there's two things that we need to understand that happen, monumental things that happen in Saul of Tarsus's life. The first, he would have been at the cross when Jesus cried out, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Now, the reason we know that to be true is because when Stephen cried out the same thing, "Father, hold not this sin to their charge or to their account." Um, that would have been the moment when Saul started really kicking against the goats. Imagine, that's what Jesus said. That's And from a, a religious man's point of view, and Saul certainly was a religious man, there's in no way, um, Derek, that, he, that he, he would have understood that. He, he would have been angry. He would have been murderously angry if somebody had done something, and yet Jesus had forgiven them. And that would have been such a struggle. And we have to remember something else about Saul's heart. He was genuine in his zeal. He was genuinely and zealously wrong, but he was definitely zealous, thought he was doing the right thing. He says, my zeal was based without knowledge. Uh, And then when he would have heard Stephen, after especially being the one who said yes to his stoning, when Stephen said the same thing, that sent Saul of Tarsus into a rage, a murderous rage, and by the way, that was depicted pretty well in the, in fact, really, really well in the movie, The Life of the Apostle Paul, uh, that's out right now. So really, really a good, good indication that his fighting against the goads or kicking against the goads was his running from Jesus in fury and anger. Uh, and and that's the basis upon which I made that statement. One other thing that I can suggest to you, read a book called if you like um, um, good scholarship, uh, a book called uh, Paul, the, the Heart of the Apostle Set Free. Uh, it's a book by F.F. F. Bruce. It is the authoritative book on the life of the Apostle Paul and, in fact, was used to a great degree 
uh, by the writers uh, and producers of the recent movie on the Apostle Paul's life. So uh, no way for sure uh, we can find it in Scripture, but we can make some uh, really, really good, solid, educated guesses uh, based on knowing the, the the life that they were living at the time, and certainly Saul of Tarsus was an important man. Uh, we had another call. Enid, Enid, if you can call back. Um, sorry, you had to wait and dropped. Um, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that came in from our mobile app from Jonathan. Uh, when Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and do all these miraculous things in your name? But I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Here's Jonathan's question. How could anyone do those things without being saved? Um, Jonathan, we know that's the case. Now, we also know that there's supernatural power uh, in, in the dark side, in the enemy. Um, in context, Jewish uh, Jews in Jesus' day um, they had a very profitable exorcism business. And um, we know, for example, the, the seven sons of Siva uh, were, were an example. These weren't men with uh, supernatural power, but they made a very, very good living by casting out demons. Um, Jesus, when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he found the Jewish uh, exorcists, uh, the religious leaders, arguing with his disciples because nobody could cast out the demon. Uh, out of the boy at the, at the end of the, the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Um, so what Jesus is referring to, again, we, we, we always need to understand the Jewish context of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus is saying that you may look religious, you may cast out demons, you may claim that you did um, great miraculous things in my name, but when I tell you depart from me, I never knew you, you had nothing to do with me. And that's the way it is with religion. Religions and religious people always think they're okay. They want to believe they're okay. And yet, Jesus said, except a man be born again, he will in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. In our church culture, Donathan, there's so much phoniness, so much counterfeit. We call them signs and wonders, and they're neither signs nor wonders. Uh, and there's a whole lot of people making a whole lot of money just like the Jewish exorcists were back in Jesus' day, using Jesus' name. But they're not real. Now, how do we know they're real? I got really chewed out by a, a letter writer uh, here. He said, well, you know, I've been to this revival and that revival, and I saw real miracles happen. And, and my response was, you didn't see real miracles happen. That's not how God works. Read your Bible. And then you look at the teaching of these false teachers, and if it contradicts what the Word of God is, the power is not from God. It's that simple. So it's always been that way. It's going to be that way until the end of the age. God allows evil and good, real power and counterfeit power to work side by side, and we have to choose. And by the way, this isn't anything new. Jeremiah, read chapters 23 and 24 of his prophecy, um, and um, he dealt with exactly the same problems. So I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Jimmy calling from the south side. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Jimmy? Hey, can you hear me? 
I can hear you, Jimmy. Thanks for calling. Okay. Hey, I was the only one in the theater. Uh, this other person walked in after me <laughs> watching that movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, huh? So, I, I don't know. I, I don't think a lot of people want to go see that movie. Right? Well, our, our theater was not crowded. We had more than just a few, but but our theater wasn't crowded. I, ma I imagine it it involves when you're coming. But uh, Jimmy, Christian movies don't typically get um, unless they've really been built up, like The Passion of the Christ or or or, or a few others that were notable. I just don't think they get. Uh, a whole bunch of, of uh, a lot of people. There's not a lot of interest. So hey, you know, that, that little girl that kept on coming out of the movie. Uh huh. I, I got the idea that he, he he killed her right when she was praying. Yes. Yes. And then they forgave him when he went. When he, when he went to yep. Heaven. Wasn't that wasn't that a powerful ending? Yeah. It really was. And in the end, it says, "I must cry." This is dedicated to those that Thank you. 340-9585. We've got Enid back. Enid, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I'm Hi, reading Enid. Um, Luke. Hi, sir. Good afternoon. I'm reading Luke 19, and I, I would you explain to me verse 44. I will hang up while you answer. And listen on the radio. Thank you, Enid. Uh, I think she said 44, verse 44. Um, hold on just one second. Let me get here on my computer Bible. It says, They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Um, this is Jesus with a broken heart, ain't it? Um, he's warning the people of Israel. Um, verse 41 says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Uh, this is immediately following his uh, triumphal entry when the people are shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and, and glory to God in the highest. Uh, and the Pharisees in the crowd um, we're trying to to um, um, accuse Jesus of, of blasphemy. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And because of the rejection, Jesus now knows he's got only days to live. And because of the rejection, his heart is broken. He says, as he looks over the city, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, and then the rest of the prophecy is the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. Here's the verse you asked for. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Enid, this is a specific prophecy. Um, of an event that's going to happen some 38 years after the very moment Jesus uttered it. Uh, the Roman general Titus would uh, enrage, encircle the city, and he would completely destroy it. 
you know, when we look at pictures of Jerusalem near the temple where the Jew or the uh, the, the the Islam mosque is. Uh, and then you see the Jews at the Wailing Wall. That's the only thing that's left, the outside walls of what once was the great temple that Herod built. Well, in 70 A.D., Titus came and completely destroyed it, so completely that you couldn't even have known there was a temple there and that you'd seen it with your own eyes. And this is exactly what happened. They came in and they completely destroyed the city. They completely destroyed... Anybody that didn't get away, anybody that didn't run, it's one of the reasons Jesus said, when you see this day coming, flee to the hills, pray that it doesn't happen in winter, pray that you're not a pregnant or nursing mother. Why? Because then it would be hard to get away. And the Romans completely and utterly devastated the city of Jerusalem at that time. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 19, was prophesying that very event. So that's what it is. It's not something that... Um, it's going to happen again. It's not something that we um, can really derive any practical application from other than to say, like Jesus' uh, broken heart, our heart needs to be broken uh, over the things that, that, that happen in this world. Um, but this is a very specific prophecy uh, to Jews because they rejected their Christ when he came on time. The day they were expecting him, they rejected him. And because they did, they were going to virtually be on their own. So thank you very, very much. Let's go to um, Jim in San Marcos. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Ron. Um, I want to piggyback on what a guy said a while ago about uh, the, the Jesus telling the people to depart from him that he never knew them. I, this is a topic okay. that's been all over me. Since uh, 2008, when I was born again, because I've mm -hmm. been living my pretty much my whole life thinking I was a Christian, because yeah. my mama told me I was, because I was baptized, <laughs> because I repeated this prayer that they told me to repeat, and come to find out in 2008, after uh, the basically being chastised privately by my pastor, he said, I don't think the Spirit lives in you, and it offended me, and it hurt, but he was right. So I started to examine myself, and about five months later, I was born again, yep just over a series of weeks. And yeah. and I'm having such a hard time talking to others about it, telling my story, because so many yeah. people say, well, you can't judge their heart. You don't know their heart. And I usually come back, I, I usually I say, yes, I agree with you. But at the same time, you can't say the other direction just because they said a prayer, that they're definitely saved. There has to be evidence that they were saved, so that, that they're born again, that they're a new creation. And I was just talking to a very good friend. I don't want to—it's uh, not a friend; it's a family member. But uh, he—he's coming around. This past yep. weekend, he's starting to come around yep. because of what I've said. But it's so yep. discouraging. You hear what I'm saying? Yep. Because people are so <laughs> superficial. If there were 60, 70, 80 percent Christians in the United States, that guy wouldn't have been sitting in that theater by himself a while ago. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. You know, Jim, I, you're, you're you're preaching to the choir here because uh, I'm yes, a sir. pastor that carries this broken heart around with me all the time. You know, like you, I one time asked my dad, I was probably 10 years old, I said, Dad, what religion are we? And he looked at me like I was dumb. He said, well, we're Protestant. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he didn't know. 
but, but yeah. because that's how he was raised, that's what he was told, that's what he told us. Truth is, we had no idea who Jesus was. Now, let me give you one sort of a hint, um, maybe a better approach than than uh, a, a better way so that your message will get received um, when you're dealing with people like that. Instead of saying, I don't think the Spirit lives in you, and God bless your pastor for loving you enough to tell you the truth. But uh, do what Paula does. Paula asks people, oh, so when were you born again? And, and, and often they'll look at her, well, I don't know what that means. And if you, if you talk to somebody who's a religious person, especially in San Antonio with people that are Catholics, they'll say, well, I was born once, I was born in the Catholic Church, I'm going to die in the Catholic Church. Um, but, but Jesus said, you must be born again. He said it to a religious person. Um, and when somebody gets offended, well, you can't judge somebody's heart and say, well, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is asking them, about their life. Is there any fruit coming from the life? And we are appointed to judge fruit. Um, is your life a, a life that's lived in love? If it's, Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there gentleness and kindness and patience and all of the other fruits of the Spirit, faithfulness? I, as a pastor, Jim, often will ask people the question, so have you ever lived your life completely, completely sold out to Jesus Christ? Well, well no, but... Um, you know, I, I tell people the same thing your pastor told you. You know, you need to deal with this. Wrestle with this. Wrestle with the fact that you're, you, you were raised in a religious environment. You think you're okay, but what makes you think you're okay? And if they don't have an answer, that's the Spirit who's going to witness to them. And just like happened with you, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to be knocking on the door of your heart every single day. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate the comment. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Uh-huh. We're inside about uh, four minutes, I think, now for the program, rest of the program. You know, Jim's comment is so important. You know, we're so afraid of offending people, but if, if Jim's pastor didn't love him enough to offend him or to at least risk offending him, uh, where would Jim be? You see, we've got to have answers to these questions. And if somebody doesn't live for Christ, what makes him think? that they're really Christians at all. I had a, a man not long ago who was having an affair. Um, it wasn't a full-blown affair yet, but it was headed in that direction. And uh, he wanted to talk to me, and I, I just said, look, I, th I thought you were a Christian. He goes, well, I am. You know I am a Christian. I said, well, I thought you were, but Christians don't live like this. How can you consider yourself a believer loving Jesus and do these kinds of things, make these kinds of decisions? And you know what? They get angry because it's not what they want to hear. But I'd rather them angry and end up in heaven than having peace on their way to hell. And we need to listen to people like Jim because he's lived it. And I can't tell you how many times God's given Paula such a wonderful gift. Um, she can be direct. You know, things that I get punched for saying, she can say and people just smile. But she lets them know I'm serious. When were you born again? How do you know you're saved? Who is Jesus to you? And it usually comes down to, well, I'm trying to be good or do good. Well, I'm, I go to church or I was baptized. None of that matters. What matters is the born-again experience. Powerful testimony, Jim. Thank you very, very much. Let me see if I've got a quick question. Um... 
Here's a question from our mobile app from Nacho. Regarding the people in Abraham's bosom, were their sins forgiven before or after Jesus took our sins on the cross? Or perhaps I should ask, what was the criteria to be able to go to Abraham's bosom? Great question. That's, of course, Luke chapter 16, where we get that look in. And by the way, I had somebody call that a parable today. It's not a parable. It's a story. Um, Their sins were forgiven by faith. Abraham, Genesis says, believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So people before were saved, just like people after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, just like we were saved, by believing in him. Now, we have more of the story than they had. It ought to be easier for us, but unfortunately, it's not for a whole bunch of people. But all they did was believe God. That's believing God's word. They believed him and were justified just as if they'd never sinned. So great question, Nacho. Uh, Their sins were forgiven before the time when they believed. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Remember, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch the ladies' study at calvarysa.com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening in Christ. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.